abandon all your self care. You know, this is hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> and I run now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just give up. Well, there's the encouraging message of our podcast yeah, for this right. one. Hello, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am not Neftali Serrano. This is Grace Wilson. We're missing Neftali today, so I've uh, stepped up in his place, but the rest of our team is all here. Uh, so, you know, we love to start these uh, with a question of the month and let everyone introduce ourselves. And this month, the question kind of indicates our theme uh, about a lot about wellness and burnout. So team members, let's do just a little check-in. So on a scale from one to 10, where one is very burned out and 10 is completely rejuvenated, tell us how you're doing today and tell us something you did this week that kind of recharged your batteries. Deepu? Oh, put me on the spot right there. Yes. <laughs> Out. Burn. He's checking his phone. He has no idea what you just said. <laughs> That's why I called on him. I was actually. <laughs> I was. I was trying to be objective about this. I have my score right here. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, strangely enough, uh, on July second, I had actually downloaded uh, the Wellbeing Index from the Mayo Clinic, and I think that's something Neftali is going to. Uh, sort of walk through uh, at the end of our podcast or at some point of the podcast. And I had one, wanted to check in for myself. And then, of course, we're doing some other research work with this here. So I was sort of uh, user testing it for the next uh, couple of months. So uh, on your scale, Grace, I'm probably at a five uh, or a six. Um, and on the well-being index, I am lower than 63% of U.S. employees. And so a couple of areas that are at risk for me um, as a man, qualities for men, quality of life is towards like the not so good side. Meaning in work is really on the high side. Uh, and then work-life integration, kind of on the poor side to the left. Likelihood of burnout. Um, I am at somewhat of lower risk. I'm at like uh, probably 50%. And then uh, severe fatigue, um, I'm about 30%. And then low risk, um, about 2%, um, I guess, for suicidal ideation. So that's the well-being index. So that's sort of my score. So if you guys are on video, you can see my score here. But that's not uh, your credit score there, Deepa. Ooh, Amber, Amber. <laughs> it does Still look like good. a FICO score. It's looking good. Yeah, it looks exactly like a FICO score. So, you guys should all go take it so you can know what I'm talking about. That's right. So one thing that I started incorporating into my daily routines that have in the past couple of weeks is I started doing the relaxation response, which is uh, Dr. Benson, Herbert Benson, talks about spending a few minutes sort of just sitting silently and doing deep breathing. And then um, a month ago, around the same time, one of the things I decided to do was on my way to work in the morning, I would call my parents who were in, in India. Before, I used to call them twice or thrice a week uh, at different points, but this became like a clear check-in point that I do every day uh, on my drive to work. And that's been really uh, meaningful and connecting with them on their day-to-day -day stuff, which I don't get to be a part of physically. So that's been really rewarding. And 
even on the days when I'm like really busy and rushing out, I still make it a point to call and keep all distractions free during the drive, which is about 10 minutes. Great use of your commute time for that relational yes. connection. So awesome. Thank you for sharing. Bridget, Beachy, you want to tell us how you're doing? Yeah, this is uh, interesting um, because on a scale of, you know, burned out and looking at the definition of it, I don't feel burned out at all. I think I'm at a 10. But on a scale of being one to 10 and being stressed out, I'm probably at about a 10. <laughs> so I feel stressed, but I don't feel burned out. So I don't, you know, I feel connected to people. I don't feel, you know, depersonalized. I feel great meaning uh, in the work. but the every day, you know, it feels like it feels intense from the time I wake up till the time I go home, which normally, you know, it's 7am here in the uh, Pacific Northwest. I normally get in about 645 and I leave about six on most days. Um, so that's probably not great. I bet if I took that well-being index, uh, objectively, that's probably not great. Um, but I feel tons of meaning in the work. And I think uh, some of the things that help on a daily basis is one, I get to work with my spouse. So we both get here early and nobody really comes for the next hour and 20 minutes. So it's just kind of nice um, being here with just him and I doing our thing. The other thing that I do is I exercise probably about five days a week. So that really helps. And then my parents just moved to Yakima. And so I see them probably about five times a week. Uh, so my uh, mom will have like food waiting for me when I get home. I know this is like man, I'm airing a lot of stuff right now, but, um, you know, it, it's something that we've kind of worked out where she helps out a lot around the house so that I can go do the things that I need to do. And, um, you know, I check in with her. She feels positively about it. My dad feels positively about it and he's, he's working and Dave and I, my husband and I, we feel positive about it. So, uh, yeah, it's go, go, go. Uh, and at the same time, I feel extremely connected. The one last thing I'll say that helps with that connection piece is I've really, really, really made it a point of emphasis over these last few months to acknowledge and give uh, verbal and written kudos. Um, so as often as is humanly possible from my team of behavioral health consultants to the MAs, to the reception staff, I try to write and give verbally as many kudos as possible. And then also with the actual behavioral health team that I uh, run, essentially providing them with objective data a lot. How many patients they're seeing, the reach that they're having, the patient satisfaction, the comments, so that you're always being surrounded by, you know, the impact that you're having and leading with that why. So I don't know, maybe the well-being index is say that I'm, you know, not really thinking clearly if I don't feel burned out, but uh, I don't. You get to be the judge of that for yourself. I mean, it sounds like you've got some good insight into how you're doing. Um, Jeffrey Ring. I, um, I'm doing great. I'm in a 9-10 range. Um, and, and part of it was that um, some really cool stuff happened this past weekend. Um, uh, many years ago, I, I did a fellowship in Madrid, Spain. I was a visiting professor, did some research and, and um, clinical work and teaching. And um, those were incredibly happy days. Um, some really close friends, uh, Manolo and Eloisa, um, psychologists from uh, Universidad Complutense, were, were here visiting. And uh, it was just so fantastic to reawaken all the just delicious memories of time there. But even more so, um, uh, Eloisa offered to make some uh, homemade gazpacho for us. 
and, and, and um, uh, she was out sightseeing, but she sent me the, she and Manolo sent the list of all the things that they needed, you know, the, the cucumber and the tomato uh, and lots of love. She added the bottom, which was so sweet. Uh, that's her grandma's recipe for gazpacho. It was so delicious and refreshing. And uh, as was their visit. A great moment of connection. Amber. Gordon. Okay. So I don't have a, uh, a fancy index to be able to turn to, <laughs> but I am definitely going to take some time to take that because I think that it's really good um, to always kind of have that objective measure because we might think we're doing really great um, in certain areas and it can alert us to some areas that we really need to pay attention to. So thank you for that nudge, Deepu. Um, Beginning of this week, I was really not doing too hot at all. Um, I was probably somewhere like in the three, four range. I um, had a really awesome event happen in my family over the weekend. My younger brother got married. Um, I was the maid of honor at the wedding, which was amazing. But any of you who have gone through weddings and just notice my phrasing there, gone through. Like, I think I still have some wedding PTSD occurring. Um, It was a wonderful event. Super happy for my brother. Love my now sister-in-law. But, oh, my gosh, was that draining. Um, Especially being the maid of honor, I was kind of like everybody's everything. I was, like, holding all the dresses and the flowers, making sure everybody was where they were having to go. And um, I realized coming into this week – I did not do my normal weekend routines to recharge. Um, So I went right into my clients, right into my caseload. And then by yesterday, I came home from my morning sessions. Um, My partner was home. I walked in the door and he's like, do you need a hug? And I just hugged him and cried. Um, I was like, wow, like I'm really, really not doing too hot here. Um, And I realized I just was having like true compassion fatigue because the thoughts that were going through my head were like, yo, who cares about me? Like nobody cares about me. What about me? What about me? And I I took a step back and he's like, hey, like what can I do? And it was kind of like what Bridget was talking about, being able to ask for help. I was like, I really need gas in my car and I really need to take a nap and I really need to eat. (laughs) So he took my car, got gas in it. I took a nap. And even this morning, like I took a lot more time to have a slower morning, um, did some self-care things. For me, a lot of that involves health stuff um, because I do operate with uh, a chronic illness. So being able to make sure that I'm constantly filling my cup is really, really important, eating good food, getting good sleep, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I do regularly that I haven't been doing is uh, taking time to reflect. And I think, you know, Bridget was talking about this, how we're so go, 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 and we're really busy. And that can be great. But then we also get away from how we're feeling internally and being able to deal with all the stuff that might be coming up when we're with our patients, when we're with our clients, when we're with our coworkers. And we can't deal with it in the moment. You can't always deal with it in the moment. So it doesn't go away. It goes somewhere. So taking time to actually address that stuff so it doesn't just keep building up is something that I try to do regularly and obviously didn't do it on a weekly basis. And it kind of bit me in the butt. So after my little meltdown yesterday and my recharge, I'm, I'm probably somewhere maybe around like a, a five today. I'll, I'll say I'm like right in the middle there. I just need that release sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Everyone needs a good cry. <laughs> yes. Um, I obviously definitely can't ask you guys to share without doing the same thing. I would say I have had some major ping pongy ups and downs lately, but currently I'm probably um, around a 
four, less to do with professional life and more just to do with personal life stress and family issues. Um, But the thing that I did that is really pulling me out of it is I shared with some close friends and just had a really great vulnerable conversation with them and some openness about the areas that I was struggling with. And it's amazing how much lighter our burden is when we share it to carry it with someone else. And so that has been really powerful. And I'm so thankful for that support of those strong women in my life. Well, thank you guys all for checking in. Let's check in with Neftali, even though he's not here in person with us, he's here in spirit and he's going to share his moving through the wellbeing index. All right. So I am here uh, at the stage of filling out a survey for the, what's called the advanced practice provider wellbeing index. And pretty standard survey. I'll go through it here with you. Gives me an anonymity statement at the top. You can rest assured your responses, scores, and data are secure, completely 100% anonymous. Your information will never be shared or provided to anyone. All right. During the past month, have you felt burned out from your work? I'm not going to give you the answers, but I'll fill them in. During the past month, have you worried that your work is hardening you emotionally? Now, what really makes this a little bit tricky is that, as most of you know, the majority of my work is actually as executive director of CFHA, whereas this survey is asking me about my work at the University of North Carolina, where I volunteer. So it'll be interesting to see, but in any case, a good uh, example. During the past month, how often have you been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? Most of us us listening on this podcast know where that question comes from. That's a question from the PHQ-9. During the past month, have you fallen asleep while sitting inactive in a public place? I wish. During the past month, have you felt that all things you had to do were piling up so high that you could not overcome them? During the past month, have you been bothered by emotional problems such as feeling anxious, depressed, or irritable? During the past month, has your physical health interfered with your ability to do your daily work at home and or away from home? The eighth question is, please rate your level of agreement with the two following statements. The work I do is meaningful to me. And the ninth question, my work schedule leaves me enough time for my personal and family life. And then uh, there's a submit the index button. I'll click that. But um, it's interesting that here at the bottom, it also has some good explanations. How can well-being be determined from seven to nine questions? I'm just going to click that here just to see what that says. The Advanced Practice Provider Well-Being Index is a validated screening tool to evaluate fatigue, depression, burnout, anxiety, stress, and mental physical quality of life. The index was developed through a rigorous process with multi-step validation in greater than 18,000 working U.S. adults, including both healthcare workers and the general U.S. population. For U.S. advanced practice provider scores are compared to normative data from a large sample, uh, ages 22 through 65. Evidence indicates that uh, the index is useful not only for identifying advanced practice providers in distress, but also for identifying those whose degree of distress places them at risk for adverse consequences. Index scores also correlate with quality of life and fatigue. All right, so I'm going to submit the index now, see what I get. Okay. So it takes me straight to uh, what they call a dashboard, and it gives me my well-being index score, which um, I guess I'll just tell you is average. And then it gives me my index score in comparison to other U.S. advanced practice providers, which is also average. 
and my well-being index score is above 72%. It gives us give me a comparison of above 72% of the advanced process providers at UNC. Um, and then there's some graphics there um, that correlate with several of the questions. Um, so it gives a likelihood of burnout, for example, um, and a percentage related to that. And so, for example, my likelihood of burnout, according to this graph that it produces, is uh, about, uh, it looks like about 25%, perhaps. And the average is somewhere close to 40%. Wow, that seems kind of high. And then uh, work-life integration, it gives a graph that shows where I am with that in a sort of a range of lower meaning in work to higher meaning in work. Thankfully, it gives me a low percentage prevalence of suicidal ideation. I guess you can tell that from the questions. Risk for medical error is another uh, percentage graphic that it gives. So really pretty interesting. And then it gives resources for my well-being. It gives these different tiles that I can click on for health behavior, stress and resilience, relationship, and work-life balance, career and professional development, some additional resources. And apparently there's an app that I can use. I'm looking at it on my desktop right now. And then I can retake this assessment beginning uh, in about a month or so. So pretty interesting, this Advanced Practice Provider Wellbeing Index. Um, If you have an institution thinking about kind of doing something like this, you may want to contact the folks at UNC Healthcare. Certainly let us know here at the Integrated Care Podcast. We'll Um, We can certainly try to make that connection. Well, that's it. Thanks for uh, being along with me as I fill out my well-being index. So I want to take a quick break to say that before we launch into our topic, that this podcast is sponsored by the University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinics for careers at UW. Check out careers.uwhealth.org. And then we also want to direct people to some of the great resources um, put together by our organization, CFHA, especially information about our conference that's coming up in October. You can find more information there at integratedcareconference.com. Um, and you can find more information on the podcast at integratedcarenews.com. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. So for this week, we really wanted to focus our attention inspired by a conversation on our listserv. 
I was so inspired by the vulnerability of many people that shared on our listserv about burnout and compassion fatigue. And we wanted to start our conversation as an extension of that by kind of defining some terms and talking a little bit about the scope of, you know, what does burnout mean? What is this conversation about wellness and um, what's in the research and what's in the conversation that's happening? I know burnout has a very, at least from the literature, has a very specific definition. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole or not. I think so. I think, yeah, I think it'll be helpful to sort of define burnout. And then one of the things that's been refreshing about the listserv conversation that's been coming up for us is one, how people are processing through and recognizing or coming in contact with the burnout process. And then we've had some really good uh, conversations around well-being and moral injury and moral distress. So we can differentiate that um, and we can start with a definition of burnout. Did you have that up, Bridget, by any chance? I had um, the Maslach burnout inventories uh, definition of emotional exhaustion and feeling tired and fatigued at work, depersonalization, developing a callous, uncaring feeling, even hostility towards others, including clients and colleagues, and then reduced personal accomplishment is feeling you as the employee are not accomplishing anything worthwhile at work. And this can lead to lack of motivation and poor performance. So that's just what I had pulled up. One of the things that I do with my residents when we're talking about burnout is look into some of the research and a couple of terms I think that are helpful to define are burnout versus compassion fatigue and secondary traumatization. And definitely the constructs get used a little bit interchangeably and there's some overlap between them. But one way to think about it is burnout as that feeling of being depleted, just like you were talking about and kind of overrun, overworked, has to do with the tasks of our job and not being able to do enough. It has a lot to do with being out of control over the things that are assigned to us. And it's just like too much work and too little time and things that aren't meaningful versus compassion fatigue. Really we're at risk as helpers because we help and we help and we hear these stories and we kind of pour ourselves out and we can develop compassion fatigue, which shares more characteristics with like a trauma reaction or secondary traumatization. Uh, I know that this was something that we had talked about on our prep call, Amber and, you had some thoughts about that. Yeah, it, it is really interesting because as I've been, you know, tracking the, the listserv, it's, it's been a really comforting um, experience to hear about so many different clinicians having all these different experiences, especially as a young career professional. You know, I, I get caught in these moments where I think like, wow, you know, maybe, it, you know, if I'm five years in or 10 years in, I'll be able to deal with this better. Um, I shared it on our prep call. Um, I had two different young women this week who shared stories of um, being victims of sexual assault, and it it really affected me. Like my my sleep, how I was acting towards my partner, like all it came out in all these different ways. And I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'm just too young. Like maybe I'm just too early in my career, and you know, I just don't know how to deal with this stuff. And then being able to kind of go and look through the listserv and be like, wow, like everyone is dealing with this. Like everyone is having reactions. Everyone is trying to find their way to process, you know, the secondary trauma. Everyone is going through all this stuff and being able to recognize for me, it's not burnout. I, I love what I do. I get a lot of meaning out of what I do, but the, the compassion fatigue and the secondary trauma, 
it, it's real and it doesn't mean that I'm any less of a professional. It means that I'm a human being and I care about my clients and just seeing so many other people having that same experience and being able to support one another, even though it was an email chain was so helpful. And that's why I'm really glad that we are talking about it on this podcast. And especially for all the other young professionals out there, you know, there's a lot of resources and there's a lot of people that are looking into this and doing research on it because it's something that affects you no matter where you're at in your career and it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, Bridget, I think you would uh, identify and uh, jump on board with this, the idea that uh, we care about things and therefore we are more likely to be hurt by things, right? Like the more, the more we move closer to the values that we hold so dear to us, the more opportunities there are for it to sort of poke you in different ways. And some days it's re- in really meaningful, unexpected ways. Some days it's a lot of struggle. And sometimes identifying and leaning into the struggle could be meaningful. But I think in the listserv, one of the things that really helped me pull back and tie into the concept of secondary trauma is the whole concept around, you know, I can't prescribe Prozac or psychotherapy for poverty and all the mm-hmm. social determinants of uh, health that really surround the lives of our patients that we see. I work in the Texas-Mexico border in South Texas, and there's incredible rates of poverty in people with real issues like immigration status. And because of that, uh, they're not able to get a lot of the help and support that they need. And I always tell uh, residents, patients, and I'm beginning to remind myself, when you have a big stressor in your life, you should be stressed out, right? Like (laughs) you're going to like lose your calm and really go out of proportion. That's great because that's your body's doing biologically what it's designed to do. However, it's these small stressors that are not really big, but they occur every single day. And they sort of just tap at you every single day without really knowing. And then that's what really becomes problematic in the long run, and not being able to connect with those or even recognize with that. And I think the listener, but as well as in just looking at my own practice, one of the things that I've found myself doing is in the evening when I just sort of Uh, when I do get the time to sit and reflect through the day, I do this thing called the examine, which is a way of like examining your day and sort of noticing where uh, presence of mystery or uh, universal uh, presence was alive in your life, like kindness, graciousness. Uh, Some may call it God. Some may call it a spiritual relationship. And I think about those. And the last week I had this patient who, couldn't really afford anything. I mean, he was living in a house in single room with three siblings. And uh, I just felt uh, incredibly connected to his suffering. And I just remember that during that little exam and practice, I was just in tears, right? And that on the one hand, I couldn't really do much with it. On the other hand, making sure that I stayed in touch with that was an important, I thought, when I, especially when I walked into the clinic next day. You're sort of walking in with a different sense of how this connects to you. There's an analogy that I use in therapy a lot that I think applies to us as providers as well, um, that when we have strong feelings or emotions, it's a little bit like 
holding a beach ball in a pool and trying to hold it underwater. And so for a little while, you can. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a ball underwater. But eventually, the pressure of that, if you don't let it up on purpose, is just going to come up and smack you in the face. And it's going to be at a time that's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable versus if we purposely kind of let it up and experience it and come into contact with it, then it keeps a much better I don't want to say control because it's not about control, but it keeps a better relationship with those feelings. We have to have some level of expression and experience of them. Absolutely. I tend not to use the word burnout whenever possible. I, I use the word resilience, vitality, uh, well-being, uh, in part influenced, I think, by, um, by this uh, recent viral video uh, by Z-Dog, um, who really says, do not call it burnout. Um, because burnout has um, the potential to be blaming or humiliating or um, implicating the individual for not doing enough. Yeah, he says very powerfully, like, you know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, patchouli oil. It's going to make this better when somebody is, you know, thrashed by a system that is really crushing their soul. He, he, he really prefers, um, <laughs> says this very boldly, uh, moral injury, um, you know, as you, know, you were referring to, Deepu. Um, I, I will say that um, the work in this area that has been most exciting to me comes from the National Academy of Medicine, and I invite people to visit their um, website for clinician well-being. They created a model which helps us understand um, what are the factors that contribute to uh, resilience and well-being. Uh, and, and, and that model has um, seven areas and of the seven areas, only two are the personal factors, right? Things that we do. And we do have to take care of ourselves. And we do have to grieve cases that have, you know, gone awry. And we do have to celebrate, um, you know, with colleagues the, the you know, positive impacts that, that we're making. But there are many, many other categories of factors that lead to someone feeling like this is not meaningful or fulfilling work. Or, or worse, right? We are talking about, um, you know, of these clinical situations in which people um, end their lives um, because of the unbearable burden of, 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 of the work and the situation. So um, uh, really thinking about, you know, society and cultural factors, uh, the burden of rules and regulations and audits, uh, the organizational factors about how we deal with conflict or not, our, our policies and procedures, the way we work together the learning environment, uh, the burden of responsibilities. So, um, so uh, I think this provides a very bold and broad and humanly respectful approach to this notion of burnout or resilience. And I, I think that, that, that on, on top of that, uh, this notion that it's really about change of organizations and systems, that we can't do this work alone. And it's incumbent upon us find a strong voice in our organizations, and it's certainly incumbent upon our leaders to um, boldly understand uh, you know, what is taking such a terrible toll on healthcare delivery. I'm really glad that you brought that up, Jeffrey, because I think a lot of times this conversation veers into blaming the victim. I heard, it may have been in that same Dog video, or it may have been somewhere else, but I heard that... Um, a lot of times the medical system treats the clinicians as the expendable resource that you, you know, we can bill differently or we can just put more time in there, but we need to just do it all on the backs of the clinicians 
which creates the system of burnout that or the system that is taking advantage and creating moral injury. And then they point back to the clinicians and say, you got to just take better care of yourself. Yeah. It's the contextual variables for why clinicians are feeling the way that they feel. So yeah, if you took somebody and put them in a situation where uh, they have all these tasks and they can't get the patient, the care that they need day in day out in a mill like fashion. uh, And then they start not feeling great. And then we say, Oh, look, uh, yeah, you're burned out uh, because you need to do more mindfulness. I'm not saying that mindfulness isn't good. I mean, I, I use gratitude. I use all these, these, these strategies too. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's a, like you guys are saying, it's organizational, it's contextual, it's just systemic. It's a, I, I try to, when I teach the residents about this and when I talk about this, I try to take a both and perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, I'm not, I'm not saying abandon all your self-care, you know, this is hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know that none of us would ever make that argument as we all run now, <laughs> right? Just give up. Well, there's the encouraging message of our podcast yeah, for this right. month. The end. Um, you last three years, you've done good. <laughs> that's never, I know what any of us would say, but at the the same time, we have to work on affecting change um, at the system level and our healthcare systems, but also, as you said, our, our society and our culture. And um, that quote that you shared earlier, Tipu, from the listserv really impacted me too, of the, the challenges of trying to treat poverty with Prozac. Uh, and I think that it's, it, it, there's such a daunting task of working. And a lot of times, in our integrated care. And I would love for us to sort of shift our conversation too, to talk about integrated care and how it can be helpful, but also maybe some ways that it contributes to the problem as well in certain formulations. But a lot of times we're treating the most difficult patients. My interns ask me constantly, why do we see so much more suicide than any of our other people working in other settings? And my answer to them is think about you know, the place that you're working. So we, our clinic has a goal to see an on average 70 patient encounters a day, um, not behavioral health, but just the physicians. And you can know for sure that almost every of those patients who has suicidal ideations is going to have a behavioral health consultant pulled in for support to expand the system, to build the team around that person. And so just the sheer volume of patients that that means um, we're seeing and treating are the hardest ones. And that can be, that's a different burden on a clinician um, than a traditional therapy environment. Absolutely. I think um, coming to terms with the context in which we work, so, you know, in, in systemic thinking, we would say, the symptoms that a patient or a family member is expressing is a broader reflection of the wirings of the actual interactive system in the family. And so if a rising epidemic in the healthcare system is to talk about uh, uh, vitality and wellness and well-being, or on the other hand, uh, awards like burnout, it's a reflection of how the system is wired and it's important to acknowledge both and uh, perspectives. Um, and Jeffrey, to going back to uh, the point that you made about uh, looking at this as sort of like moral injury um, or moral distress, uh, one of the things that came across the listener from Corey Smith was his idea of moral distress. And um, he sort of uh, provided a definition 
where it's an instance of moral distress occurs when an individual believes she knows what the ethical course of action to take is, but is prevented from implementing that course or must do or cooperate in doing otherwise due to external or internal constraints. And in so doing, she acts or is complicit in or views herself as acting complicitly in a manner contrary to her personal or professional values, undermining integrity and authenticity, right? So there may be a series of things that we are moved or aligned to do with our values, but we just can't because of payment system or social determinants that we have no control over or uh, not being able to do a more intensive kind of work for a patient more often than not uh, just because they can't come back uh, to the clinic or whatever it may be. So we make decisions that may uh, be in fact impacting us in how we begin to see our own integrity as healthcare providers. so I thought that was an interesting yeah, well, way of framing. And I think we can follow the dollars here, right? What, what is it that determines that, you know, clinic visits are 15 minutes or that yeah. you need to see X amount of patients? And, you know, every time that you have to talk to someone about their life or health or, you know, you know psychological health um, and, and uh, attend to prevention and, you know, in 15 minutes, like, Every single encounter is an opportunity to feel exactly what you're describing, Deepu, uh, a mismatch, a desire to help. People are called because they care about other people. They care about what happens in their lives. They want to make a difference. They want to connect. They want to build relationships. They want to be there for the bad news, and they want to be there for the good news. Right. 15 minutes does not allow for it, hardly any of that. Right, and, and really thinking through that, I think... What's an interesting turn, I thought also in the listserv, at least the way it struck me, was all of us, uh, majority of us on the listserv tend to be in some kind of uh, behavioral health kind of role within a system or either providing, educating, or being part of the system. And maybe for a long time, I felt like as a behavioral health provider, it's my task to really think about well-being and structure the environment and do the lectures and do interventions for the group to create a sense of well-being and and conversation around it. And I thought it was kind of relieving for me to be part of a group that does similar things to come in touch with what may be affecting us as we are called to do this deeper work of uh, thinking about wellness and well-being uh, in in our role. So I don't know if you guys felt that or see any similarities or differences in how the conversation struck you over the past few weeks. I, I, I did want to say for me, it, it's kind of, I, I feel like I'm constantly kind of coming up against a wall because we are okay. Like we, we know that it's not all on the clinician. We know that, you know, it's all kind of driven by the dollar sign. We know that, you know, insurance is the one driving the 15 minute visits and all of that kind of stuff. So like what happens then? And and that's where I feel like I get really frustrated as someone that's just coming into this field. Um, when I'm in the emergency room and I'm doing, you know, a, a BPS assessment on somebody who's come in with suicidal ideation and they're already kind of trying to make sure that like I'm in, I'm out. I, you know, get them placed in some kind of inpatient facility so that we can see somebody else. And 
you know, I'm an MFT. Like I, so I'm like, Hey, like, tell me about your family dynamics. Let's sit down and do a genogram. But that's not what I'm there for in that moment. I really find like I, there's not even a ton of time for me to offer support. And that's when I feel burnout. That's when I feel like, wow, I have so much more to offer this person from like a human perspective, but there's not the space for that. And then I go to my supervisors and they're like, well, that's like, that's just kind of how it is. You know, you do the best that you can and then you move on. So like, who do we talk to? Like who, who, like I, I've seen the Z video or I forget what his name is, Dr. Z. Um, I've seen that Z dog, Z dog. That's right. Cause he's cool. Um, I've seen that. I cried when I watched that video. I cried because I was like, yes, like this is, this is the stuff. Like this is it. But then, but then I'm like, what now? What, what now? So we know all of this, but then like, what, what now? Does anybody have any answers? Cause you know, I'm not saying I have this, I'm not saying I have this figured out. And I, I obviously do not want to go, you know, come from that perspective because like I said, I'm uh, super stressed out at a lot of times. Um, I, I really don't experience that la- lack of meaning uh, situation. I feel like I don't know exactly what the antidote is. I think maybe that's a level of uh, willingness and acceptance to know that the situation that I go into the system knowing it's broken. And then this is just what I do for myself, but you right. know, whatever people need to do, I know it's broken. And I know that I'm working with a bunch of physicians and medical providers who are seeing 20 to 30 patients a day each. And a lot of what they do depends on insurance and, and medications and whatnot. Right. And then here I am, I don't have to deal with that. So there are, there's moral distress that happens like little paper cuts as you guys are describing. But as a behavioral health clinician, I experienced that I feel like way less because I don't prescribe medication. Um, I prescribe, you know, being with the human that's in front of me. So I feel actually at an honor that I can come into this broken system. And if I am able to allow the PCP to feel like their schedule will never get blown up. I say that to every new PCP. I say your schedule will never get blown up to where you can't get through your day because a BHC will be here for you and we will take care of the situation at hand. And I just, every, every day I walk in, I feel like it's an honor that these patients who are telling me the most horrific things that I've ever, I couldn't even imagine some of the stuff that I've heard in these last seven years of working in integrated care, which is funny because people are like, Oh, integrated care adjustment disorders. Okay. Then you obviously have never worked in integrated care. So so hearing the most intense things ever, but I always think to myself, if I'm not here, they don't get any care. If I'm not here, and maybe this is like uh, some type of, I don't know, narcissistic thing, but like, if I'm not here, what do they get? And um, I feel that way as a BHC, like I'm joining a system and I'm trying to help it to be better. And I think it's a both and, and if we can continue to push for getting more resources into primary care and having people understand the value of primary care and bringing, you know, making it a little bit of a slightly healthier system to try to get more people to come in, then I'm hoping on the backside, there'll be advocacy for more resources for primary care. And in the meantime, as far as seeing a lot of patients, it is tough. I, I average probably 11 patients uh, a day when I'm in clinic and I'm about 45, 50% clinic. So it, it doesn't, it's not hard for me to see a lot of patients in the sense of, um, I look at it as every patient I don't see doesn't get any care. So that's just something that I bring in. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not exhausted at the end of the day. I'm not saying it's not tough. I'm not saying I'm not literally running in the clinic. Like literally, if you see me in the clinic, I'm literally running in the clinic. I'm not necessarily saying this is all healthy or this is all good, but I, that does not weigh on 
my heart because I'm like, I did everything. It's like as an athlete, like I left it all in the field. Like when I go home at night, I don't think about it because I'm like, I did every possible thing that I could while I was there and I'm going to do it tomorrow. So I don't know what I'm doing to this conversation, if I'm making it better or worse. Well, you, you made it a lot better for me, I think. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if anybody else got anything out of that, but um, I have, I've talked about this book before. I love it. It's The Resilient Clinician um, by Robert J. Wicks. And I was just like rereading as Bridget was talking the um the basics of stress management which is like at the very end of the book and one of the ones that I realize I always skip over is um self-appreciation and just being able to feel like even if there is a broken system what we're offering into that system is meaningful and affecting some level of change that that's enough to be able to go home at the end of the day and feel like okay yeah everything might be like you know based on the the almighty dollar sign. But what I brought it into the clinic, what I brought into the hospital, what I brought to that patient, that meant something and that's enough. I agree that we as um, behavioral health um, uh, um, team members, uh, you know, bring a lot to patients. But I, I think we also bring often, a, you know, a, a partnership um, with our medical colleagues um, on the voice of ethics and the voice of um, of uh, possibility and the voice of change, and certainly, often we bring the tools of small tests of change and um, an ability to really think and rethink the workflows and some of the ways that um, we are delivering um, care. I just want to briefly draw everyone's attention to this beautiful article by um, Daniel Shapiro and colleagues from Penn State College of Medicine. This is in the American Journal of Medicine, um, just in May 2019. Um, it's a beautiful, it's entitled, get this, Beyond Burnout, a Physician Wellness Hierarchy Designed to Prioritize Interventions at the Systems Level. So what they've done, actually, I, I spoke a little earlier about the National Academy of Medicine, very complicated model for um, clinician well-being. They've sort of taken all of that and they have deconstructed it and they have beautifully woven it together with a Maslow's Hierarchy. It's an extraordinary, creative, innovative, and delicious read. And I really invite all of you to, to take a look at that. I'll add it to the show notes. But this idea, like, are we attending to the basics in terms of, like, are people hydrated and eating in this work and have time to go into the restroom? Are we attending to safety issues in the, in the clinic or the emergency room? And, 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 and this piece that you just spoke about, Amber, about respect and celebration of um, of the work being done, of being appreciated uh, for the impacts that we're making. Is that part of, a, our, um, of our um, staff meetings and our huddles in the morning? And then, of course, the impact of you know, making a difference and contributing. So um, I, I'm just so happy uh, that um, this is an issue. This is in the mainstream um, medical journals, that this is really, you know, making a uh, its way viral through videos of you know, revolutionary voices, um, and, and um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. But we won't just see, I think we will impact. Yeah, I feel the needle on the conversation moving of the last four or five years that I've been following it from the individual perspective to an increasing more and more acknowledgement that this has to be a system level change, which, you know, is just music to my uh, MFT years that we have to have a system level change. I'm with you, Grace. <laughs> and I, I'm just, I'm thankful 
um, for this conversation we're having. And I think for the conversation on the listserv of just coming together and supporting one another and acknowledging, yes, this is hard. We're doing the best we can in a broken system, connect back with our meaning, talk about best practices, and then use our voices collectively to affect change in our individual systems and in the larger healthcare system and our society as a whole. So I am thankful for all the work that you are doing, like our team and our listeners, because I know that change is coming about. Okay, so thank you all for that conversation. I think it's been really powerful and I'm so thankful for the work that we're doing and not just the people here on our team, but also the listserv. And I know that we are encouraging one another and pressing on and leaning into the meaning that we're making of the work that we're doing and also really affecting change in our individual systems, but in the larger healthcare system and then eventually into society. So thank you for all that hard work. Uh, Deepu, I think you have a lead out for us. I do have a lead on. I want to echo what Bridget was saying earlier. I do think um, behavioral health folks in medical and primary care settings, we are the ones that are retrofitting this amazing system of primary care to make it more efficient and make it more sustainable and green as we move along our journey. The uh, readout for today is a old Franciscan blessing uh, that I thought is meaningful to where we are in terms of the conversation that we had. And it's an invitation to lean closer to the things that make a life and the work that we do meaningful. May we be blessed with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May we be blessed with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May we be blessed with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, war, immigration, so that we may reach out our hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may we be blessed with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you all next month. Thank you, guys. Thank you.